What do liturgy and politics have to do with one another? How does our worship connect to our witness in the public square? Uh, is there such a thing as a secular or political liturgy? And how do we deal with people who are being formed in a way that is contra the way of Jesus? Uh, and does the Bible even inform our decisions in the voting booth? And if so, how? Welcome to another episode of the Resilient Pastor Podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Packham, and I cannot wait uh, for you to hear my conversation with Caitlin Shess today. Uh, Caitlin is a writer, author, and a THD student at Duke Divinity School studying political theology, ethics, and biblical interpretation. Uh, she has a THM in systematic theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. She has written about theology, politics, and culture in places like Christianity Today, The New York Times, CT Women, Relevant, and a variety of other places. Uh, listen, you know our goal with this podcast, our goal with the Resilient Pastor Initiatives from the book that released earlier this year to the city roundtables that we're hosting around the country to the cohort that is currently going, and of course with this podcast uh, it's really to provide a space for pastors to be able to think out loud together, to name some of these challenges, to be equipped and encouraged as we lead our churches in rapidly in a rapidly changing world. And so in each episode of the podcast, we'll have a key bit of data or insight from Barna, uh, and then we'll kind of grapple with this theme. And I can't wait for you to get into uh, the conversation today. But listen, we're so grateful for our partners who have made it possible uh, to present this stuff to you. Well, one of our key partners is Brotherhood Mutual. Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company is a leading national provider of ministry-focused insurance and services. Uh, some of you might already be partnering with them in your church work. If you're not, if you're looking for uh, help with that, please visit brotherhoodmutual.com. I also want to thank Full Strength Network. A Full Strength Network, they understand that ministry is hard, and what they've done is they've created a membership program. It's a subscription-based program that can help you cultivate well-being by giving you access to confidential coaching and counseling, along with some other well-being resources, videos, and courses. Um, but but here's the, the thing. It's, an, it's a very affordable monthly subscription rate that actually allows you to have uh, 12 sessions with a counselor that's licensed, Christian counselor that's been vetted, and it's been subsidized by their own sort of uh, uh, providers and donors um, so that you can you can have access to health, health uh, well-being care, soul care in a way that is confidential and affordable. Let's pray today before I get into my conversation with Caitlin. Jesus, we're living in a world where there's so much noise that's swirling around us and so many competing voices that uh, vie for our loyalty and vie for our affections. I pray today as we listen to this episode that you would call us back to you and call us back to the center, uh, that you would be the one that informs every area of our life, including the way that we think about our engagement and witness in the public world, the public sphere, the political sphere. Uh, thank you for each listener today. We pray for your presence to be with us now. In Christ's name, amen. Caitlin, so good to see you. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks so much, Glenn. I'm glad to be here. I would love to just have you start by kind of sharing a little bit about how did you get interested in this subject of politics and faith and the church? Uh, how did this emerge for you as an area of interest? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in the church and was always really interested in politics. I thought those were two completely separate interests, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I went to college, I went to Liberty University for college. Um, and so I was there 
during a really tumultuous time. Um, I was there from 2012 to 2016. So my last two years, especially the 2016 election was raging. Um, and I had spent my first couple years of college, honestly, learning a ton, learning a lot of theology, learning a lot of Bible. Um, I was a history and political science major. So I was learning all of that stuff. Um, and was honestly really confronted with those questions of how our political witness should correspond in some way to our theological commitments, to the biblical witness, because I was seeing something so different in many of my theology classes that I was seeing in the public square when it came to politicians that were on campus or protests that would happen. There were press on campus a lot of the time. So I think a lot of students at Liberty in that period, regardless of their own kind of personal political convictions felt the weight of our own history, the history of the moral majority, the history of Christian political engagement in America, and then felt the weight of, as young people, what kind of legacy do we want to leave? We, many of us are frustrated with the legacy we've inherited, but what do we do next? Um, and I honestly, going to seminary was the furthest thing from my mind at that point. I was thinking about applying to law school. I was thinking about a career either in politics or in law. And a long story made very short. Um, I, the very last minute in college, decided, actually, I think... I think I'm supposed to go to seminary. I have no idea what that means for a job. I like that was not something in my mind at all. I just thought I need to study scripture and I need to study theology and God, I am hoping in faith will, you know, show me the next steps after that. And so right in the middle of the 2016 election, I was graduating from college and then starting seminary. And so continuing to think theologically about these questions in the midst of um, institutions that were grappling with the legacy of evangelicalism in America, we're grappling with how to think about what to do moving forward. And I'm really just so thankful I had professors in seminary who said, let me give you some books. <laughs> let me help you think through this, not just as a new problem, not as a crisis in this moment, but as something that is happening within a larger tradition and history, not only learning the history of evangelicalism in America and our political witness, but thank goodness, learning the much larger, diverse, rich history of Christian political thought. How have we addressed these questions in very different contexts in the past and kind of going back to those resources to think about it in the future? And that's really what drew me to do doctoral work at Duke was I'm not done <laughs> learning yeah. about this larger yeah. history and this larger tradition and, and being very convicted that the churches that I have been a part of and the tradition that I still am a part of needs those richer resources. We need people who are going back into history and around the world to think about what we might need to say now. That's incredible. And there's so many uh, things that you just said there that I'm like, okay, I cannot wait to unpack this more in, in our conversation <laughs> here. But I want to start with this because you're describing um, kind of an angst, you know, in the tail end of your college undergraduate yeah. years that Caitlin, a lot of listeners and maybe a lot of pastors have uh, people in their church who relate to this. A, a lot of people, a lot of young people especially, have become disillusioned with Jesus, with the church, because of a particular segment of the American and, yeah. and you know, particularly uh, even a subsection of the American church, evangelical church, uh, that went all in on right-wing politics. And I guess my question to you is, how much in, in your work of sort of excavating some of this stuff, in, did it in some ways or, or how did it um, salvage your faith or restore a little bit of like, okay, Jesus is different than some of these expressions uh, I've seen? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'll never forget. It was it was probably a week or so after the 2016 election. I'm in my first semester of seminary, and I was sitting at a coffee shop doing um, my Greek homework. <laughs> so I was learning this ancient language. It's so hard, you know. And I was sitting there trying to understand it, frustrated and distracted because I kept thinking like, I'm learning this ancient language. What does this even matter when it feels like the world is falling around, like mm-hmm. falling apart mm-hmm. around me? And I don't know how to trust the leaders of the church that I'm in or the churches I grew up in. I'm feeling betrayed by people that I thought I could trust. But I also feel like what resources are out there? Like, who do I trust now? Even if uh, some people have shown their true colors, who's out there and what do I do? And um, and weirdly, and I really think it was just the leading of the Holy Spirit in that moment, directing my attention back to my homework and saying, this text that you are struggling to understand is so much older than you and from a such a different context and place in the world. And and you can find some rootedness in that, in understanding that generations of Christians around the world in different times and places have struggled with the words that are in front of you right now. And that is larger. It is so much larger than the particular crisis that you are in. And so I thank Greek for helping me kind of stay rooted and even just realizing the fact that I have to translate this into English, it was helpful for me to think when Jesus commands his disciples to spread the gospel around the world to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, recognizing I am more the ends of the earth than any of those other places you have listed. And so can I see myself in that marginal position, not in the center of everything and not having to hold up all of Christianity in the world on my shoulders? And then can I use that recognition of the place that I am in? to lead me to those other resources, to think even in, even in just my own country, one of the things that has been foundational for me is reading the theology of the black church in America, you know, a community that has faced discrimination and abuse and uh, marginalization in our theological conversations. You know, I went to a seminary where it was really hard to convince, you know, my colleagues and my professors that it was worth reading some of those people. And so could I go to them to see what it looks like to be faithful in circumstances where you are being so actively harmed? Could I look around the world at the persecuted church in places that, you know, in context I can't imagine? And then can I also, I think even really importantly, I took a I took a Karl Barth class in seminary and I went in with no knowledge of who he was other than I should be a little suspicious apparently of this theology. (laughs) And I went in and learned not only that there was so much goodness there theologically, but also what would it, this is really a tangible, not very far in our past example of a church grappling with the reality of really evil politics Um, capturing it? And what would Mm. it look like for me to be a Bart or a Bonhoeffer that is faithful Mm. in the moment? Um, All of those examples of thinking, how can I, how can I return to the things that they have written, find guidance? Um, And also, you know, to your original question, how do I then find my faith more grounded, not only in the work and the person of Jesus, but in the people who I've seen throughout history be faithful to him, even when the people that are closest to me now aren't being faithful? So good, Caitlin. I mean, in a sense, it's all translation work, right? Like you're talking about the translation from Greek to English, but this is all trans. We're translating from cultural context to another. And, and when you recognize that, then you can recognize, okay, that's a poor translation um, of the Jesus uh, message or the Jesus way. Um, It's, it's been too enculturated into a particular sort of um, um, context, whatever that's skewing the, the, the message or skewing the meaning 
Uh, and so helpful to recognize. I love that because you're, you're talking about um, the historic church, but you're also talking about the global church. And then even within, zoom in to America, even within America, the black church um, versus the white, you know, sort of a white evangelical dominant um, world. There's there's all these different nuances or contexts that, that greatly skew things. So one of the things you've done a, a lot of work in is about liturgy and politics, which again, you know, mm-hmm. faith and politics alone, that's, that's one that people say that, what is that? Right, right. But, <laughs> but liturgy and politics, you know, yep. um, what yep. do they have to do with each other? I love when I, when I first shared on Twitter that I was writing this first book that I wrote, the liturgy of politics, I, I announced it by saying, I'm writing a book about what liturgy and politics, or I think maybe I said spiritual formation and politics, what they have to do with each other. And Michael Ware, who's a just faithful person and a a lovely thinker who wrote the foreword to that book, he responded on Twitter, spoiler alert, everything. (laughs) They have everything to do with each other, Um, which which is basically what the thesis of the book was, which is to say, we are both spiritually formed by our political participation, and we are formed for political work by the liturgy of the church, by the worship of the church, by spiritual disciplines, by our practices together. And unfortunately, I think we have often done a far worse job than the political machine in America at recognizing that humans are desiring, worshiping beings and and want to exist within the context of a larger, dramatic, cosmic story, want to be told the part they play in it, want to be drawn along by a good thing that they are desiring. Um, and then often, because of recognition of that emotional element, the p- politics around us have not only played on our loves, they have very often played on our fears played on our sense of loyalty, who is one of us and who is not, who should be feared and who should be protected. They've done a really good job of recognizing that that's how humans function. And the church has often responded, and, and I say this as someone who gets asked to do things like this a lot, the church has often responded by saying, let's give a really good sermon. Let's give a really good Sunday school message. Let's write a book that describes the answer to these problems. Um, James K. Smith in his book, Desiring the the Kingdom, which I love, Mm -hmm, says mm -hmm. we're often pouring water on the head for a fire that's in the heart. (laughs) We have missed what is fundamentally motivating people. And, And I think there's so many opportunities, again, if we're thinking about the global historic church, the sermon has not always been central. And we have not always had this sense that we are brains on a stick that need information. We have often throughout history recognized that we're drawn in by beauty, that the things that we do repetitively with our bodies that engage our emotions are powerful things that can draw us to love of God and neighbor. And so we have resources for thinking about how to to think about our services, to think about our spiritual disciplines, to think about our life together as a community in a way that can address the malformations that our political society creates in us that are not just bad ideas, but are bad ways of loving and desiring. And we have resources for addressing that. And the sermon is a part of that, but we have often acted as if that is our main resources, as an intellectual response to a, to a problem that is really about love. Woo! Let's make that the clip right there. Uh, <laughs> um, I also feel like this should be the moment to pause and I offer a little brief commercial for Anglicanism here because because it, it, <laughs> of all the Reformation sort of voices, you know, we, we think about Luther's polemics, so we think about Calvin's, you know, institutes. So you have argument and you have uh, um, exposition 
but the person who gets lost in the mix here is Cranmer, you know, in the English mm -hmm. Reformation. And what Cranmer did was while, you know, while Luther was writing arguments and Calvin was doing dense theology, what Cranmer did was wrote a prayer book. And, and this is, this is the thing that, uh, it was so fundamental to sort of Cranmer's anthropology. I, I think of uh, Ashley Knoll, sort of the, the, I think he's the renowned living scholar on Cranmer. And he summarizes Cranmer's anthropology this way. He says, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies, you know? So mm -hmm. there is, there, there is this sense here of like, we've yeah. got to form, we've got to, you know, reach the desiring heart, uh, which that's what you're describing with, with, with liturgies, with beauty, with communal rituals, yeah. habitual rituals. Um, uh, let's unpack this a little more, Caitlin, because maybe, maybe this sure. is a new concept to someone in the like, political liturgies. What do you mean? What does right. that look? What does that look like? Like how? What are the liturgy? What, liturgies of politics? Yeah, yeah. Um, I always have to, you know, qualify, especially if I'm in low church contexts, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That when I say liturgy, I mean all of the corporate things that we do together regularly that have that rhythm. And I grew up in churches that would have said, you know, liturgy is this Catholic thing that we don't do, but we did have. Two songs, announcements, another song that kind of quieted us down, the sermon, another song, you know, and then we left. We, we had a rhythm for what our services were like, and there was an element of attention to what was happening emotionally. And people can, there's cynical ways of thinking about that, right? We're manipulating people's emotions and, you know, but I think the good part of that is recognizing that, that people need to be shaped in those kinds of ways. And we were attentive to that. We weren't ignoring yeah. that, yeah. but we yeah. were often unaware that we could make different choices about it, that we should be thinking about how are we being formed. Um, and so a great, I think, example of this, and I, I try to be really um, vague in some senses when I talk about this, because I want to be able to speak to people across traditions and denominations, and we have sure. different ways of thinking about baptism and communion. Um, but a great example of this, I think, is I, I belong to a church, a Presbyterian church, so not typically very liturgical in many ways. But where the leadership has paid attention over the years to things like what we do with our bodies and made a decision at some point that it was important for us to have a moment of confession corporately and that to kind of recognize in ourselves what we were doing, we should kneel. That that was important. It wasn't part of the tradition that we kind of inherited, but we should kneel in confession and that there's something important about the, you know, the moment when someone walks up to receive communion and the posture that they're in. So there was a conversation. It wasn't just unquestioned tradition at all. It was, let's have a conversation with the congregation about, we come up with our hands open to receive communion because we want to be in a posture of reception. And that's related to what we think is going on here. Now, people in different traditions might say, you know, that's not how we do communion, or we don't do confession in that way, or we, but it is a question of both just being attentive to what you are doing. How is it forming you? Anything that uses your body that's repetitive, any language that is rhythmic, either language that's rhythmic in songs, which we often don't pay enough attention to, or language that is said together corporately, regularly. Language that's rhythmic is important. So pay attention to all of those things and evaluate how they're forming that's us. Right. But then also the moment when I kind of want to say, no, actually, there might be some right and wrong sometimes is when I say, let's not forget the tradition. Let's look at resources throughout history that have addressed these kinds of problems. Um, when have we needed an answer to individualism? What what practices were happening as, as we grappled with that? And how could we incorporate those into our own church? What practices were needed when the church in Germany was figuring out its relationship to Nazism? You know, how could we appropriate some of those uh, traditions? Um 
So I think it's not just about, it's about first evaluating, taking stock of what we're doing, doing an audit on the things that we do together, especially those things that are especially formative. And then asking, are we operating as a church as if we are the first ones to deal with these problems, as if we popped up out of nowhere with a pastor and a Bible and have to figure out everything for ourselves? If we are, then at least the challenge to us should be, let's go back to things that happened before us and try and, and try and gain things from that larger tradition. We'll be right back to our conversation in a moment, but first I wanna share a word from our partners. I wanna thank Full Strength Network. They recognize that ministry is hard, pastors and ministry leaders are working long hours with high expectations and little rest. And so maybe your personal life feels exhausting because ministry has been draining so much energy for you. Often we're so busy taking care of other people in our lives that we don't spend the time that we need to take care of ourselves. Full Strength Network gets this. And that's why they've created a well-being membership program that gives you access to confidential coaching and counseling experts, along with relevant well-being resources and a strong community of other pastors who are also focused on living healthy lives. And here's the amazing thing. You can access all of this for less than $15 a month. You heard me right, less than $15 a month. And you actually get 12 sessions with a licensed professional Christian counselor, 12 sessions for your spouse if you're married as well as 24 sessions in the year. And it's it's possible because of the fundraising that they've done to underwrite it. They're trying to make it not just confidential, but also affordable. Head over to fullstrength.org to learn more and sign up. This episode is also brought to you by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a leading national provider of ministry-focused insurance and services. They're headquartered in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but they've got a heart for serving churches and ministries all around the country. And they have an amazing array of resources to help keep us thriving. So for more information, visit brotherhoodmutual.com. And now back to my conversation with Caitlin. The, the idea of doing an audit of your liturgical practices in church and saying, yeah, you, you're right, every low church, whatever, whether you recognize it or not, every church uh, has a liturgy. And this is, the, you know, some of my work on on corporate worship and, and the sociological dimensions yeah. of that. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, the physical, the habitual, the communal, uh, th- those are those are dimensions of it. You mentioned Jamie Smith. He's, he talks about um, the liturgies, the cultural liturgies that are at work in the world around us. Yeah. and how they're forming desires. Uh, there are liturgies of the state or liturgies that sort of form our affections, yeah. uh, not just to love a country, but to love our particular political tribe. Uh, could you name that for us? Like, what are some of those those liturgies yeah. that, that actually form our affections in a, in a narrow way, not a general love of country, but a particular yep. love of identity and tribe? Yeah, I I recently was um, speaking to a group of high school students, which I normally don't do. I mostly talk to pastors or maybe college students. And I was really nervous about how I was going to relate some of these questions to them. Like kudos to their Christian school teachers who were like, let's think about how we're being formed by the political world around us, even these teenagers. And I thought, okay, well, maybe what I'll do is I'll ask them to talk about their favorite movies. That's like a good, you know, get teenagers involved. So I was like, but I'm hoping in the back of my head that all of the examples they give fit a particular liturgy in America, a particular story about the world that we enact together communally, which is a kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps story, right? That if you are good and faithful and you work hard, you are owed good things, either by God or by the all-powerful market or by the universe, you're owed good things. So, But I took a risk, right? They could give examples of stories that don't fit that. And so I asked them to tell examples of movies and maybe five or six of them so excitedly described the movies they love. 
And every single one of those movies, like without exception, fit this picture. Because even as even as children or teenagers, we have learned through our media consumption, through the language we use with each other, through our regular practices in our life, that that is the story that we exist in and that we want to live into. And in the church, we have an opportunity, as as we've been talking about, we have an opportunity to worship together corporately and to practice in our families and individually things that either confront that story of the world or practices that leave it untouched or even confirm it with the way that we talk to each other and the way that we are together in worship. So I think that's that's something that happens in our political world, right? We hear politicians, both on the right yes. and the left, honestly, talk about this in different ways. But we hear it in regular like movies and TV shows. We hear it in the Facebook fights we have about things. Um, even in the way that we tend to the regular rhythms of our lives. One thing I tell people a lot is, not just pastors kind of take an audit of your church worship, but individual people take an audit of what forms you in the day. Like That's what it. media do you consume and when, what, you know, what state of mind are you in when you do it? What are your regular rhythms in your community? Like, do you make decisions about where to shop for your groceries or where your kids go to school or where do you spend time in public? How, what kinds of decisions are you making about that? And are they shaping you in certain ways to think about who your community is and what your place in it is in certain ways. So it's yeah. it's broader than, I think when some people hear political liturgies, they think it's when a politician is speaking or it's when <laughs> I'm in the voting booth. And those are really important things, but our political participation is shaped by so many forces broader and stronger than that. And the church has a real opportunity to confront those. And we haven't done, I think, a good enough job of, as we've said, auditing or evaluating where do the liturgies of our corporate worship and our personal disciplines confront or fail to confront those liturgies that we are drinking in every day? So helpful. Okay, so Caitlin, you've you've probably heard, you know, the Barna statistic of pastors who are super discouraged, considered quitting, you know, vocational ministry. Yeah. It was it was 29% in January of 2021. It rose to 38% in October of last year. And then it's up to 42 or 43% earlier this year in 2022. But then they they pressed in a little deeper this year to say, well, what are the causes, um, leading indicators even of pastoral burnout? And one of them was this political division in America right now. And then they drill down even deeper there to say, well, well, why? What is it about political division that's negatively mm-hmm. affecting pastors? And the main reason that pastors named was that Christians are more loyal to their political views than their faith. So I want to ask you this question, Caitlin. We're talking about formation. We're talking about counterformation, maybe deformation on, on one direction. Is this essentially about the Augustinian idea of disordered affections? I mean, is this mm. is this a case of these secular or political cultural liturgies are forming us in a way to love something or an ideology more than we should or love it wrongly? Um, how how do you see that uh, this dilemma here? Again, the, the way the pastors worded it was Christians are more loyal to their political views than their mm-hmm. faith. How would you describe it? Yeah, I, I, I think that, first of all, I just trust the pastors that I hear who also echo this kind of sentiment that they yeah, that they have yeah. a good you know finger on the pulse of their congregations. Yeah. And I've seen it in my own context in painful and often surprising ways where I think we have these moments of crisis where things are going along fine and we kind of have 
I think very often avoided talking about political questions or yeah. formation questions when it comes to the public square, um, because we were worried that it would cause division. And then you have moments when you can't avoid it and it becomes just incredibly obvious and you have to grapple with the consequences of it. Um, I think that language of loyalty is really important because it combines two really important ideas, both for Christianity and in the political sphere community and identity. Loyalty is, is essentially about who is my community and how does that relate to my identity? Do I have a sense that those two are related or even synonymous with each other? Do I think my identity is so wrapped up in my community and what community have I chosen and how do I kind of prove through my identity that I belong to that community and not this other one potentially? Um, and so it makes sense it honestly is like a very, you know, logical thing that we would have this particular confrontation, that we would see people having to make a choice between their commitment to the body of Christ and their commitment to a political party, because both are making ultimate claims on community right. and identity. And so we're, we're going to have to grapple in the future, I think, with not only, as, as we've been talking about, not only how are we talking in church about these kinds of questions, how are we being formed through sermons and worship and spiritual disciplines to be able to be good, faithful citizens, but also are we forming strong communities that have a sense of who my community is and what my identity is in relationship to that? And that needs to be both very local and in the strange way that the Christian tradition has always spoken of it, we both have this great loyalty to our local community. And yet the closer we are locally, the more we are connected globally and historically to the church that has existed far beyond the circumstances yes. that we are in. But, but addressing those issues of community and identity, yes, it's a loyalty thing, but I think breaking it down is helpful to say, we've got to address where people are misplacing their identities and where they're finding community in the wrong kinds of ways and in the wrong kinds of communities. Yeah, that's so brilliant. Uh, what I'm hearing you say is, okay, if liturgy shapes loyalty, but loyalty is really an answer, a way of answering the question of identity and community, who am I and who are my people, then there is a secular yeah. way of answering that question. And there is a kingdom way of answering that question. And the kingdom yeah. way is going to answer the who am I and who are my people in a much broader way than political tribalism or partisanship could ever do. We're, we're, yeah. We've got to get to this uh, the subject about the Bible here, Caitlin, because you're, you're working on a second book here about <laughs> the Bible and politics. And, you know, when Barna, they did an election poll among U.S. voters and for a previous kind of state of pastors report, for practicing Christians, religious beliefs is is the number one voter influence. So, so people are trying to let their faith inform yeah. their decisions in the ballot box. This isn't it isn't as if um, we've got the majority of Christians saying let's be disengaged, and even the people who say just preach the gospel, pastor, uh, they're not they're not following their own advice when it comes to the ballot box. They're right. they're trying to allow their their faith to influence them. Uh, but but the trouble is the Bible has been used and misused in lots of different ways. And it's also true that there's not a straight line, or maybe I'll ask it this way. Is it true that there's not a straight line from biblical conviction to public policy? What's the, com what's the complication here? Uh, why is it so difficult to say, well, yeah, the Bible is going to inform all of my voting decisions? Why, why is that? Is it more complicated than just that? Yeah, I think this is a really good example of how the problem maybe on Twitter or the problem with the talking heads on social media or in the media generally is actually a different problem than I think the average person in a church problem. I think the problem on Twitter or on you know mass media tends to be 
thinking that you can just cite a Bible verse and it will be self-evident that that supports a certain policy. And we've seen this in really, someone tweeted recently something about, you know, there was a, a Psalm 139 can be used to defend, you know, abortion policies, but the Jubilee can be used to defend student loan forgiveness. And no one really is on the same side of how you're, but you're using the Bible in the same kind of way as if yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, a yeah. self-evident policy. Yeah. Um, I think that's the pitfall for the people who want to make a splash with a spicy tweet or yeah, a, you know, yeah. quick clip on CNN or Fox news. I think the problem in the churches tends to be seeing that, seeing that hypocrisy and the kind of just messiness and silliness of that, seeing how self-evident it is that that's not actually how it works. And then kind of saying, okay, well, scripture must not really have much to say then for my voting preferences or my political perspective, because I've seen how abused it's been. So this can't, this complicated ancient book that's been so abused, like it can't have anything to say to what I'm to what I'm dealing with now. And I think that's where it goes back to, to looking at the broader tradition than just the place we're at now. The Bible was, you know, used and abused so deeply throughout American history, particularly in support of white supremacy. And we've thought a lot about how it was used to support slavery, to support Jim Crow, how it continues to be used as a bludgeon against those who are fighting for racial justice. And yet there are faithful churches and people who went to the prophets, who yeah. went to the Exodus, who That's went right. to Revelation and That's said, right. I am seeing in this text, my community, I am seeing how God responds to injustice. And I am finding myself in this larger cosmic story with motivation to work hard with this constant acknowledgement that I am awaiting Christ's return to redeem all things. And so not every political strategy is permissible for me because I don't have to do it all on my own. I am awaiting that ultimate redemption. And there were pitfalls within that, right? It's not that there's one community that's gotten it right every single time. But I think fundamental to the prophets especially and I've been in Jeremiah a lot this summer, and it has just struck me so consistently. Fundamental to the prophets is who actually speaks for God, yeah. who actually That's discerns right. where the spirit is moving. And that is going to just be the struggle that we have. We don't get to give up that struggle either by saying this talking head or my interpretation is the ultimate one. And I don't have to worry anymore about discerning who's right and who's wrong or saying it's so hard to discern where God is speaking, where the spirit is moving, that I just go into the voting booth and I do what I want. And I don't ask scripture to confront my preferences or my biases. It is instead the really difficult contingent. It is minute by minute work. It is, you know, generation by generation work of saying, we have to be listening to who is really speaking for God. Where is the spirit really moving? We're going to make mistakes on that. We're not going to get that judgment right. Generation after generation will look at the one prior to it and say, you got it all wrong, but now I'm going to be the one to get it right. You know, we're going to have yeah. pitfalls and failures. But at the end of the day, that I think is the task for pastors to lead their people into is saying, we have to discern what is God doing? Where is the spirit leading us? And yes. who is speaking faithfully for God? So good. Your reference of Jeremiah really, really hit me, Caitlin, because you're absolutely right. I mean, there's these prophets who are saying peace, peace, and yeah. arguably they have history on their side. You know, God's, God came through for Israel loads of times, but Jeremiah is saying mm, something different is happening here. You know, there's going to be yeah. a good ending, but there's going to be a very difficult uh, um, immediate thing. Um, and which, which also highlights, just to make sure we're catching everything you're saying, uh, it, it's absolutely a um, devastating 
era of of Christian history, particularly in America, that the Bible was used the way it was um, in the in the South, especially here, um, to justify slavery. Uh, and and you're right that the the faithful witness of the Black Church. Uh, I'm so thankful for Esau Macaulay's work, you know, to say that hey, the Black yeah. Church never stopped. Uh, listening to the prophets, listening to Moses. And, and actually, the Black Church stands in a history, a long history that goes all the way back. Was it Basil or Gregory who gave the, the you know, the sermon um, against slavery back in the fourth century? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the early, you have the early um, uh, churches in the early centuries using church funds to liberate slaves. So yeah. it's not as if... Um, these conclusions only emerged in the 20th century in America or yeah. they're, they're the latest sort of hashtag movement. Uh, it's not true. And I, I think it's important to say that even for listeners who are maybe struggling with doubt and deconstruction and they only, their view of church history is only 150 years. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, help, yeah. it's helpful to kind of say, actually, if we reclaim the church at its best and we look back over 2000 years, yeah, we got it wrong several times, but man, when we get it right, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, this is a, a perfect moment to kind of land the plane here on this episode. And uh, Caitlin, I, I feel the weight of this, you know, as you're talking about this, this yeah. is, this is serious stuff because uh, it doesn't just impact the course of events in our communities, um, but it also impacts the witness of the church. And that's what you began by saying, yeah. you know, we, we all know that worship and witness in general are connected, but you've helped us specifically connect um, how worship is forming our sense of identity and community so that our political witness in the world um, takes a shape that glorifies God and is for the good of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so pray, pray, would you pray for us, for our listeners, for ch- pastors, church leaders yeah. who are trying to carry this weight of discernment, uh, helping people kind of disentangle um, from the very loud, formative voices in, in the world around us? Yeah, I'd be honored to. Dear Lord, I thank you for the gift of your church, for the witness of the scriptures handed down throughout the history of it, um, for the work of your son Jesus um, in ministering to fallen people, in dying on the cross and resurrecting with the promise of return to redeem all things. God, we ask for guidance and wisdom, especially um, for those leading churches and ministries, congregations, communities. We ask, God, that you would give them uh, wisdom and guidance as they discern where you are moving, what you are doing, how you are speaking to your people today continually. Um, God, we just ask for, for their hearts to be settled in the face of great chaos and disturbance and and fear. We pray for um, the quiet confidence necessary to speak into their communities, um, a non-anxious presence, a clear uh, vision of your gospel, um, and that our communities, God, would be places where we would learn who we ultimately are, who our ultimate community is, and how to move from that settled place of identity and community into faithful work in your world. We ask that you would bless that work Uh, restrain our hands from doing well-intentioned but evil things um, and give us the the guidance uh, we will continually need as we make decisions minute by minute, generation by generation, about how to be faithful in your good but fallen creation. And we ask God for your um, comfort and guidance as we await Christ's return, as we await the redemption of all things, God, that you would train our hearts to desire your redemption above all else and have it motivate 
our faithful but still cautious and careful work in the world today. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Listen, if you're uh, interested to learn more, Caitlin has um, a book out that she referenced, a new one that's coming out, um, I assume, next year. But Caitlin, you also travel and speak on these subjects, and you help churches kind of think through that. Would you just talk a little bit about what you can offer in terms of resources and speaking? Yeah, I do a lot of work of coming to churches. Either I do some preaching, but I also do kind of weekday events, trying to kind of both offer some theological grounding for these conversations, but also hopefully helping to give communities resources for continuing conversations. Um, My goal really is to say, how can we have a reset or an audit of what we're doing um, and provide some resources for the faithful work that pastors are doing um, that is so much more crucial to the work of those communities, but trying to kind of fill a gap where I know people are looking for for both help um, and kind of someone who can say something maybe a little hard and then then leave you to to continue that work um, with people in the future. Thanks so much for this conversation today, Caitlin. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Listen, if you are uh, intrigued to learn more, we'll drop Caitlin's website info uh, in the show notes. Uh, We're so grateful again to our sponsors, Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a leading national provider of ministry-focused insurance and services. And to learn more about them, you can visit brotherhoodmutual.com. And then if you want to take advantage of Full Strength Network, this well-being membership program that gives you access to confidential coaching and counseling, uh, a whole bunch of well-being resources uh, done with an, an affordable monthly subscription rate, go to fullstrength.org to check that out. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share it, like it, text it to some friends, uh, pass it on on social media. We're so grateful that you've taken the time to listen, and we do hope that it's encouraged you. Wherever you find yourself today, on the road, on the trail, on the beach, in your car, uh, we're praying that the Holy Spirit would meet you with fresh wind in your spirit. God bless you, friends.